as the children are heading out, I want to encourage you to open up to Exodus 24. That's going to be page 56 in, your, uh, in the Pew Bible that's there, Exodus 24. And as you're getting to Exodus 24, I want to talk about something that's been a long-standing tradition in the church. It's this. Everyone knows what this is? Sign of the cross. That's right. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This has been a long-standing tradition in the church. Not all, all flavors and expressions of Christians still practice it, but they at least most of them know what it is. The sign of the cross is a way of marking ourselves. It's a way of reflecting that the mark of Jesus is upon us. When we cross ourselves in this way, when we make this sign, we acknowledge that Christ is in us and that we are in Christ. And it's more than a gesture. It's more than just this ritualistic thing that we do. When I make this gesture, it's an expression of a commitment. It points to a covenant. Covenant's a fancy biblical word. Synonym for it is promise. It points to a promise that has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And in making this sign... This gesture, I'm expressing my commitment, my devotion to him and to that promise that he has fulfilled. And in many ways, the sign, like the image that it points to, the cross itself, is made up of two lines. The vertical and the horizontal. Both lines, I think we can agree, are needed for the cross to be complete. And in much the same way, we have a vertical and a horizontal dimension to our lives. And we have a vertical and horizontal understanding, or at least we should, of our commitment, our covenant with Christ. And without one or the other, something's missing. Without one or the other, the vertical or the horizontal, we're not in full communion. We're not in full relationship with Jesus. Now, you may be asking yourself at this point, he told us to turn to Exodus 24, right? So why is he talking about the sign of the cross since we're in the Old Testament? Well... My brothers and sisters, in many ways, I think that Exodus 24, chapter 24, is shaped in the sign of the cross. It's framed in the sign of the cross. This is, in 24, Israel's great confirmation ceremony. In the Lutheran church, we practice confirmation. Our children are baptized as infants, maybe a little bit older, and when they get to a certain age, we recognize them as adults as they confirm their faith. Israel is having her confirmation ceremony. This is the ratification, the formalization of a covenant made long, long ago. It's been building up to this moment. And what we're going to see in this divinely instituted ritual in Exodus 24, we're going to see both the horizontal and the vertical dimensions of our relationship to the Lord. And it's my hope that as we look at this, as we read this, that the covenant made here will serve as a lens for understanding our own commitment and worship of the living God. So if you will, let's hear from Exodus 24. Then he said to Moses, the Lord, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near, and the people may not come up with him. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice. Everything that the Lord has said, we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls and the other half he sprinkled on the altar. 
Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, We will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of sapphire, clear as the sky itself. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God, and they ate and drank. Beloved, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. How does a promise get made? How does a covenant begin? Well, it starts with an offer. It starts with a proposal. And I don't know if you remember this, because this is several months back, before the summer, that when the Israelites got to the, the base of Mount Sinai, a couple chapters back, I said to you then that this was the beginning of a wedding ceremony. And I want to take you back to that image because I think in many ways the entire sequence of events in Exodus is analogous to, if you will, a courtship, an engagement, and a wedding ceremony. The courtship began with Israel being brought out of Egypt. The Lord brought Israel out of Egypt, courted Israel away from the Egyptians, wooed her through the desert to himself. And this affection, this Desire, this courting of Israel began long ago, as long ago God set apart Israel. Of all the nations, Yahweh singled out Israel to be his bride, to be his people. The courtship is bringing them out of Egypt. The engagement has been what we've focused on over these last few months, the summer here at Mount Sinai. As Yahweh at the base of this mountain makes his proposal... Proposal about their future life together. Out of God's mouth has come the explanation of that proposal, laying it out through the words of the Ten Commandments. Case laws have even been given. That's what we looked at these last few weeks, where God gives illustrative examples of what their life together will look like. But this is all about the engagement. And here we are. A marriage proposal has been given. As the groom, the Lord brought Israel this far. He has spoken his expectations. And now, as the bride-to-be, Israel must decide if she wants the relationship to continue. And we can boil it down to, being, to the proposal being this simple. If Israel keeps all of this word, if Israel stays in relationship, living faithful to the presence of God, then the Lord will make her into his mediating people, his bride for all the nations, for all the world. It's decision time. Now, if you remember where we started in September, when we finished with the Ten Commandments, Moses came down off the mountain and initially gave God's proposal, wedding proposal. And you'll remember that at that time, Israel had cold feet. As God was coming down the mountain, Israel said, whoa, 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 we're not that kind of nation. That God, he will kill us if he comes near. Moses, you speak to us. And this is where God continues to give these examples of what it would look like to be in relationship together, these case laws that we've looked at. And now Moses, again, presents God's marriage proposal. And this time, Israel says, yes. You heard it. All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. But did you notice that Israel has to answer yes twice. 
Do you notice that Israel answers yes twice? Moses first speaks the words that the Lord has given him. He speaks the words of God's marriage proposal, and then he writes them down and reads them aloud. And after both times, Israel has to say yes. How is a promise made? It starts with an offer, but then it is sealed not just with a pledge, but with a vow. The covenant is sealed with a vow. What we're seeing here is how a promise is made is not just about our intentions. And this, it's about our commitment. If you're familiar with the wedding ceremony, and this, some of this is falling out of fashion, this is the reason why in most wedding ceremonies there are two parts that seem the same. There is the pledge and then the vow in the wedding ceremony. In the wedding ceremony, the, the pledge is where the pastor, the officiant, says, basically, state your intentions. Do you take this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife? Do you take this man to be your lawfully wedded husband? And in the old school days, we actually added something in that's kind of fallen out of fashion, where then we would say, Does, is there anyone here who knows any reason why this wedding should not take place? I Meaning, does anyone know if these intentions are not true? That's the pledge. And we say, I do, or I will. But the ceremony doesn't end there. In, in the wedding ceremony, it goes from the pledge to the vow. Where later on in the service, from the pledge, from the stating of intentions, comes the commitment. Where the man and the woman look each other in the eye and then say, not just I will or I do, but they make a specific commitment to each other. This is what God is doing with Israel. The first time is a pledge. Moses then writes it down and then come the vows. A promise is made not just by our intentions, but it's made by our commitment. It's about making a commitment. And this is really important for us to hear because we live in a day and age where we're all about intentions. And can I get an amen if you're raising a teenager right now? <laughs> Teenagers are all about intentions. Well, I intended to clean my room. I intended to pick that up. I didn't mean to forget my homework. And here what's behind the language of that is because I intended to do or not do, that's the same thing as doing it. Well, no, it's not just about what we intend to do. It's about making a commitment. And yet, it's not just teenagers. Many of us as adults do the same thing. We often speak to each other in terms of our intentions, as though that's the same thing. I didn't mean to run that red light. Well, I, I, I meant to pay my taxes on time. Well, that's not what I meant when I said that. And for us, oftentimes, we kind of mix up the two, that intentions and commitment are the same thing. We even do this... In terms of, in terms of uh, relationships, more and more in our world, more and more couples, as you know, as we may lament, choose to live together rather than to get married. And living together, to be quite frank, is about intentions without the commitment. Well, we're living together. We intend to be faithful to one another until we're not. We intend to be together until we're not. Marriage is taking intentions and making it into a commitment. We are committed to each other. And Israel, making a promise, how a promise gets made, is not just by our intentions, but it's about making those intentions into a commitment. Because, as we like to say, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. God wants, God seeks, God makes to us a commitment. And in many ways you can think of it like this, and that's why we have it in the wedding ceremony. Understand what you're getting into. And if you understand what you're getting into then commit one way or the other. Moses speaks the words of the Lord, the proposal. Understand what you're getting into. We will do everything that the Lord has said. Everything. So Moses writes it down. 
reads it out loud again. Do you understand what you're getting into? We will do everything that the Lord has said. We will obey. How does a promise get made? Intentions, a pledge is sealed with a vow. Notice that they all spoke with one voice, it tells us. It becomes official when they all spoke with one voice. You don't have a wedding if only the bride says, I do. They both have to say it. It's sealed when they all spoke with one voice. And so, how a promise gets made? Pledge becomes a vow, a commitment. And Israel and Yahweh are engaged to be married. And we continue to read, and Moses gets ready to officiate at the wedding ceremony. He gets up early in the morning, we're told. He builds an altar to represent the Lord. He sets up 12 pillars of stones to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. He has some young Israelites start sacrificing some animals. He begins to do what's called cutting the covenant. And that cutting of the covenant is not just sacrificing the animals, but taking some particular animals, cutting them in half, and splitting the halves so that there's a center aisle. What's going to happen is both parties are going to walk through the center of these dead animals that are split in two. It's called cutting covenant. And this visually symbolized, this walking through this animal that's been split apart, the shared responsibility of both parties and the mutual accountability to the consequences if the covenant is kept or broken. How does a promise get made? It gets made by a pledge, a commitment. But it also gets made by realizing that commitment... Promises, covenants are all or nothing. Walking through the center of that dead animal, split apart, in essence what's being said by both parties is that if I'm unfaithful, if I part from my promise today, let the same thing that happened to this animal happen to me. Death unto me. And what this draws out, kind of shocking for us, is again, covenants, promises are all or nothing. And again, we need to hear that because we live in a world where we love to take vows. We love to take vows, but our word's not our bond anymore. We'll swear something and then go, oh, I didn't really mean that part. We sign all kinds of contracts. How many of you have signed a contract recently and you didn't even read what you signed? Come on. And I can't blame you because of the number of pages and how small it is. And you're like, okay, whatever. We sign contracts and then when someone actually pulls it out and says, well, you stipulated here, you go, well, I didn't know that's what it said. Well, that's not exactly, well, I didn't... I intended to keep that part, but not this part. We all have all kinds of excuses when it comes to our promises, all kinds of exceptions. Well, it's a matter of interpretation. You see, that doesn't apply to me. You see, that doesn't speak to my particular circumstance. We look for the loopholes. But what God wants Israel to see, what we need to see about how a promise gets made, is it's all or nothing. A promise is only a promise. It's only valid if it's kept. There's no partial. If it's partial... It's broken. Another way to think about this is, again, sometimes when I do premarital counseling, um, I, I will have a couple who walks in, and you know, they'll say, you know, why are we going through all this? It's never the woman, by the way. It's always the guy. You know, I got on one knee. I asked her to marry me. She said yes. So what are we, why are we having this whole ceremony and spending all this money and doing all this stuff? And I mean, what, You can marry us right now. Why don't you just marry us right now? Do it right here. She said yes. I proposed. Let's do it. Again, never the woman. Never. The woman by this point is like this. Okay. But if you think about it, why? Why, why do we do that? If she says yes, why the ceremony? Why the exchange of rings and all the hoopla? We do it to make it official. 
We do it, we gather with our friends and family, the people in our lives before God to emphasize the sense of importance, that this is all or nothing, to embody the sense of accountability. Before all, we make this promise to, again, express this is all or nothing. This isn't just something that's happening in our lives. This is a momentous occasion, a milestone. This changes everything. And that's exactly what God's trying to emphasize here. A promise gets made by being all or nothing. And related to weddings, do you notice that we, and I, we're, we're becoming more and more casual about the regularity of divorce? And if any of you have experienced divorce, I'm not trying to provoke your guilt because there are different circumstances that lead to different situations. I'm talking about a general overall, we tend to almost kind of take it for granted that people are going to get divorced. Oh yeah, that happens. Do you, and do you see how underneath that, that again brings out this sense of, it, it's not all or nothing. They're almost we feed into that a little bit, that sense of that there's a partiality to things. That, you know, well, we can't really expect it to last. And how that, right from the outset, undercuts the very institution, the commitment that marriage is about in some ways. What if we brought a little reminder of one of the things we say in the wedding ceremony into the ceremony? In every wedding ceremony, they're usually said, till death do us part. What if we brought in a little reminder of that into a wedding ceremony? What if the next time I did a wedding, I had somebody take an animal, split it in two, and had the bride walk down the aisle between the animal? All of you are like, I am canceling that wedding that I had arranged with Pastor Chris. But the image of that and what it communicates, the image of that, and then for a husband and wife as they're coming together, that that basically, if we made part of the vows, honey, may it be so unto me if I ever forsake you. What would that change? Would that maybe help some men and women to think more carefully about the commitment that they're making? To not enter into it lightly? Would it help couples to foresee? Because we often don't talk about it as casual as we are about the regularity of divorce, about how painful and how devastating it is if it comes to that. And to see the visual image of what that looks like. Would that change the nature of how we enter into marriage and how we honor that commitment? The people did it, and yet they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And you know, if you know your Bible, and if you know your story, they're liars. It's not going to take long. We're going to be back here next week, and within the span of a week, they are going to be knee-deep in rebellion and idolatry, breaking their vows. And that may lead some of us in our more cynical side to go, oh, those foolish Israelites. But they're us. We are those foolish Israelites. The same thing often happens to us. How does a promise get made? It gets made by making a commitment. It gets made by realizing it's all or nothing. But it also gets made by continually reaffirming that promise, that covenant. The Israelites are no different from us. We are no different from them. You can all relate to this. When you have in your life an encounter, an experience of the living God, when you hear, experience God's voice through his word, by his spirit in your life, it changes you, it alters you. That experience grabs your heart. And in that moment when you hear the voice of God, when you experience the presence of God, everything changes. You're willing to give up everything to have more of this God. You, are, you will promise anything and you mean it because this God has engaged you. You you can't help but desire to, to live righteously, to be right with this God. And you are convinced you will. 
But we know all too well if you've had that experience, if you've heard the voice of God, that that experience for us can often fade into the distance. All of a sudden, it gets noisy. Other things start to crowd out the voice of God in our lives. All of a sudden, other preoccupations start to fill up our lives and we suddenly start to forget. We stop looking up and instead we're looking down until we're navel-gazing. How does that lint get in there? Part of making a promise, how a promise gets made, is by reaffirming, renewing our vows if we go back to marriage. This isn't a contract that we have with this God. And think about how most of us deal with our contracts. You sign contracts like me, you sign them all the time when you re-up your cell phone plan, and if you're really dutiful, you stick it away in a file. That's what you do with a contract. You pull it out when all of a sudden the agreement's not being kept. Um, excuse me, in paragraph 36, part A, I believe we pull it out when we want something, when something's contested. And yet many of us, maybe we do approach our relationship with God like a contract, don't we? God, thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your gift of salvation. Thank you for your promise of eternal life. I will file that and put that in the appropriate place. Why is this happening in my life? Uh, Lord, I believe it says here that you have a wonderful plan for my life. Um, I believe, Lord, that this kind of thing wasn't supposed to be happening anymore. I'd like you to fulfill your part of our contract. Um, I'm about to die. I'd like that eternal life now. We don't have a contract with God, yet many of us in, act as though that's the relationship we have. We have a covenant, and a covenant applies relationship. And relationship means that we continue to invest in that relationship. That's why the vows are repeated twice. Not twice, actually three times. Because if you go back to Exodus 18, when they first get to the base of the mountain, the people also say, we will do everything that the Lord has said. Three times they repeat it. Because God recognizes that we need to continually experience him and hear his word. That's why in marriage, we renew our vows. That's why in marriage, anniversaries are so important. That's why in marriage, guys, women get really ticked when you don't remember your anniversary date. Because that was the date that changed your life. And if you can't remember that, what does that say? So it is with God. God wants us to continue to reaffirm that promise. Because God knows we need to, that we are fickle, that we are forgetful, that we are subject to wanderlust. And that's why this matters. That's why Sunday worship matters. This is such sacred time because this time, whether you want to acknowledge it or not, is dedicated, focused, structured time. For you to renew your vows to God. For you to be oriented to this God. And what's beautiful about this time, and yet at the same time, what frustrates most of you about this time, is you have no control over it. We all somehow mutually agree to do this, these things together in worship. We don't get to go our own way. We don't get to do our own thing. We come collectively and submit so that we can renew and be renewed with this God. And that's why it's so important to be here. And that's why if you're not here regularly, and I yes, I'm about to guilt you. For your own sake, not for mine. If you're not here regularly and yet you're feeling far from this God, if noise and preoccupations are crowding out this God, if you're not looking up but looking down at your navel, get to church. Worship this God. And if you say, well, I worship on my own. I have my small group. You know the problem is that everything outside of this service, you can control it. So you can make it whatever you want it to be. But here you submit 
Not to me, but to a tradition, a legacy that the church has had is this is what it means to come before this God. Even if you're not a submissive person, by coming, you're submitting and opening yourself up to this God. And if you don't renew your vows, if you don't reaffirm that promise and hear God reaffirm it to you, you know what will happen? You'll be all about your good intentions. You'll be all about the, the, the things you mean with this God. Well, that's not what I meant. I meant to go to church. I meant to be closer to this God. I meant to do this. And your life will not feel as though you have a vibrant relationship. You won't feel like you're living out of a promise. You will feel as though you're living by a contract. This is the part in the service where it's time to reflect. This is the part of the service where I'm going to invite you to grab that handout in your bulletin. And there's just two little questions. Questions at this point in our worship to think about. Is your relationship with God more like a contract than a covenant? And if it is, why is this so? What helps you? Who helps you to have an uncompromised commitment to Jesus? And if you struggle with this, and I do, the starting point might be to think about this. How does Jesus reaffirm his commitment to you? Because it's out of that place of understanding how Jesus reaffirms his commitment to us that we are empowered, enabled to reaffirm our commitment to him. Take a few moments to reflect on these questions. It's not enough time, I know, but the hope is, is that it'll plant some seeds that'll lead to conversations later. But take a few moments. we continue our worship. Let's do something that has a purpose in why we do it at Sundays. Let's profess our faith. That's what creeds are about. Creeds are a way, if you will, of renewing our vows, remembering and, com and committing ourselves to the promise. So I invite you, I invite you as you're sitting there to say one of the most ancient creeds, the Apostles' Creed, is a way of, again, recommitting, reaffirming this promise that God has made to us and that we seek to make to God. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again, he ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father and will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. It's in professing our faith in renewing that promise that we also realize and part of why we also gather on Sunday is that while God speaks to us individually, while God makes this promise with us and we make this promise with God individually, 
It also exists corporately. And so as we professed our faith, let's just take a moment to live into just the briefest sign of that by standing and sharing the peace and love of Jesus Christ with each other. be seated. The horizontal. A promise is made through commitment. A promise is made when we realize it's all or nothing. A promise is made when it's continually repeated and reaffirmed. How is that promise kept? Moses, as you know, as he plans this wedding ceremony, has animals sacrificed but then collects the blood from the animals. Half of it he puts into a bowl. The other half he sprinkles onto the altar. The blood that's in the bowl he later sprinkles on the people. And when we picture this scene, some of us right now may be like, oh, gross. I mean, it's barbaric for us. It's gory. For some of you, it may even be objectionable. But it's important for us to understand why this is so. The significance of the blood was that it was intended to stain. It was intended to leave a mark. It was a sign of being set apart, of being covered by the blood. And blood was involved in the story of the Exodus. We go back to the ten plagues, the Passover, to remember that. There was a sense of being set apart. If we were to change blood and insert into it water, we could see a resonance with our sacrament of baptism within the church. And maybe we might want to, and again, I'm really going to gross you out, incorporate a little bit of blood because when we use water in baptism, we invoke, whether we realize it or not, the death of Christ. We are covered by the death of Christ. We are marked by the death of Christ in baptism so that we might be a part of the resurrection the life that is in Christ. God gets much more sensory, hands-on, in the blood being sprinkled on the people and on the altar. And again, if this is still you know, horrible for us, back then, maybe more so than today, blood represented life. Blood was life. And what God is trying to bring out in the use of blood to the people of Israel is they are seeing this promise made to understand that how it's kept requires sacrifice. Commitment requires sacrifice. The use of blood was designed to remind the Israelites that this is not just anything, any promise, any covenant, but this covenant, this promise is a matter of life and death. That the commitment that's required means sacrifice. That everything for Israel, Israel's heartbeat, her life and livelihood would come from this covenant, from this promise and nothing else. And so it costs something. It's a reminder of the sacrifice that's involved. And it's a reminder for us that how this promise is kept, that we make to God, that God first makes to us, is that there is a sacrifice involved. A living connection to this God costs something. And we understand this in marriage. In marriage, we invoke in the marriage ceremony the idea of forsaking all others. 
There is a sacrifice in getting married that we forsake all others. We set ourselves apart and are belong only to that other person to whom we're committed. And we understand that part of being set apart, part of, of forsaking all others involves a devotion to the other to the point of where we invoke in marriage the two becoming one flesh. How is a promise kept? It's kept through sacrifice. The kind of sacrifice that excludes everything else. That says it's you and only you. You and only you so that you and I together can become one. And that requires participation. A promise is kept through participation, not sitting on the sidelines. And that's why you see that while Moses is doing work, everyone in Israel is called into participation, to worship. The young Israelite men are called to bring the sacrifices along with the people. Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and 70 elders of Israel are invited to come closer. But the point here is that the promise is kept through participation. To put it in language we understand, it's all about worship. And what you see here is that worship is what leads to believing. God doesn't say believe and then worship. God says worship in order to believe. And many of us, when we, whether we come on Sunday, with our decision to come and be a part of a church, let alone what we participate in church, we often hold back and say, well, I'll worship if I believe. If I believe in this God, if I believe in this part of the worship service, I'll participate in it. But that's not the model here in Exodus 24 at all. We worship in order to believe. It's, it's the act of submission, laying ourselves before this God, that we come into faith, a greater faith, a deeper faith. And what this says to us, beloved, is worship is not a human creation. Worship's not what we make of it. This structure, this pattern that's existed in the church for centuries in different shapes and forms has always been a response to God's initiative with us. A promise is kept through our participation in that promise. Go back to marriage. <laughs> I mean, no offense to anyone in this room, I'm speaking to those who've been married a little bit longer, but do you remember when you were married, first married, maybe you were like most, some of the couples that come in, not all, but who come in and they are just, we're in love. It doesn't matter, whatever life throws at us, it doesn't matter because we are in love. Love can conquer all things. And maybe you've been a parent and your kids come home and told you they're getting married and they're like, we're just in love. And they don't have to know where they're going to live, how they're going to support themselves, what they're going to do. And you're like, okay, you just clearly don't understand what you're saying right now. And they're like, no, you don't understand. We're in love. <laughs> and you sit down, you have the dutiful conversation, and they're just like, yes, yes, you silly man, you silly woman. But you don't understand. We are in love. Now, if that was you and you've been married for several years now, how many of you would say something different if you could go back to your younger self? <laughs> Not that way. Not that way. <laughs> More in the sense of you don't really know what love is. And yet, even though we know that, even though we walk through that, even though later our kids will, we don't stop, generally stop the wedding. We don't stop the marriage because we've come to recognize, we've come to understand that it's the commitment to marriage, the commitment to love that it helps us to truly understand what love is. The commitment to love is what enables us to learn what love is, how to love, and in that commitment and then learning what love is and how to love, our understanding and our ability to love grows. And that's the testimony that those of you who've been married 10, 15, 20, 25 years can say, we thought we were in love. We didn't know what love was. But we have come to understand what love is. And in the understanding, we've come to love better. 
take that with worship. We don't believe in order to worship. We worship in order to believe. And in submitting ourselves to this God, we grow in our understanding of this promise, this commitment that we've made, and this commitment that God's made to us. And as we see here, when we participate, when we worship, when we submit, we see God. They saw God. And that, right from the outset, says this God wants to be seen. This God wants to be known. Now, part of you, if you know your Bible, the alarms may have been going off when you read this. Is this right? Because later on in Exodus and other parts of the Bible, we'll get, well, it'll just be said black and white. No one can see God and live. No one. No one. And yet, despite that reality, they see God. The sense we get is that they see a partial view of God, enough of God to know that it is God. They see this pavement of sapphire, this clear blue. They probably see the feet of God. They're looking up. And this is very much in line with other visions prophets like Ezekiel and Daniel have, a vision we have in Revelation. But the point is, they, in the submission of worship, not only come to a deeper belief, but come deeper into the presence of God. How this promise is kept is through sacrifice, submission that leads us into participation, that leads us into belief, that doesn't just stop with looking up, but ultimately leads to sharing a meal. More than seeing God, Nadab, Abihu, the 70 elders, Moses and Aaron shared a meal. God gave them a dinner invitation. Worship takes us further into God's presence and they're invited to dinner. And help us with this, they're not being invited to dinner just to get fed, just to have something to eat. In the time of the Israelites and still in some Middle Eastern cultures today, you didn't just eat with anybody. You don't just eat with anybody. You break bread only with those who you would call an ally or family. Eating together, sitting down at a table is a sign of acceptance. It's a declaration of approval. It's an it's a acknowledgement that we are together. We cooperate. We're in fellowship. You're a part of the family. And what we see is this promise is kept by a sacrifice that leads to participation, to submission, that brings us deeper into our belief, into the presence of God, that ends where we have the opportunity to commune with this God, to become part of the family, to become in fellowship with this God. And if you're hearing how a promise is kept and you're hearing all these things that we have to do, it's our sacrifice, it's our participation, it's our submission, it's our coming to the table, it's our being a part of the meal, step back a second and realize yet again that it all begins, this sign of the cross with the vertical. The vertical comes first. God initiates and moves first. Even in Exodus 24, do you notice that when Moses pours the blood, he pours it on the altar first? He pours it on the altar and then he reads the words and then he sprinkles it on the people. God offers the sacrifice first. Do you notice that God enables the people to see him? God is the one who takes the first step in participating, in submitting, in saying, here I am. See what cannot be seen. See what others, if they saw, would die. See me. And God is the one who sets the table. You ever ask yourself where the food came from? God invites him to dinner. Where'd the food come from? Maybe like manna from the wilderness. It came from the hand, the mouth of God. How a promise is kept? Sacrifice, participation, submission, communing with God, but God takes the first step. God takes the initiative. The vertical comes first, and the horizontal is our response. And it's because God moves first 
that the, we're able to respond. And so look where we are. Imagine that. We find ourselves again at the offering. How weird. We find ourselves at that part of our worship service again where it is time for us to respond. It is time for us to reflect that God has taken the first step. God has become the sacrifice. God has submitted himself to us. God has set the table. How will we respond? As the ushers come forward, as we have a piece of music to help stimulate us, I encourage you to look at these questions and not just put something in the plate, but let that what you put in the plate symbolize what you're offering of yourself in response to this God so that the promise is kept. The questions are on the screen and also here. Let's take our offering. To the cross I look And to the cross I cling Oh, this suffering I do drink of its work I do sing For on it my Savior Both bruised and crushed Showed that God is love And God is just
In Exodus 24, one chapter alone, we have the entire story of the life of salvation. We start at a distance, enslaved by our fear, and afraid and separated from this God. Don't come any closer. But this God gives us his word. He goes first in marking himself, making a blood commitment to us. This God covers our sin and brings us into relationship with him, into his presence. And we fall down on our knees. And as we gaze into his glory, he breaks bread with us. Through our worship, we come to believe, we come to be transformed by this God into something we would not otherwise be, a free people, united by our hope, united in our joy and in our peace and in our love. Our worship, what we do, this liturgy, is modeled on this pattern. The call to worship, the proclamation of the word, the confession or profession of our faith, the offering, the sharing of a meal, and the commissioning to service. It's all right here in Exodus 24. Here in Exodus 24, we see the sign of the cross, the foretaste of a new covenant. On that day, Israel and Yahweh were married. But if you know your story, if you know our story, you know it was a rocky marriage. The rest of the Old Testament is the story of their marriage. And it's a story that, quite frankly, is the story of God's total faithfulness in contrast to Israel's total unfaithfulness. Her unfaithfulness is so bad that at one point the Lord comes close to enforcing Israel's vow till death do us part. And this is the moment that brings us to this table because for most of us, when it comes to a bad marriage, the limits of what we can see when you're in a bad marriage, the only possibility we see is divorce. That's what we think of. That's our default. And if we possibly one day think of remarriage, we think about committing our life to a different person, not the same person. But not so with this God. Not so with Yahweh. The Lord keeps the same spouse. Yahweh enters into a new marriage with his old, unfaithful spouse. In Jesus Christ, God cuts a new covenant with all of humanity. That's the radical devotion of this God, but it goes even further. The radical devotion of this God is he doesn't just commit to still be faithful to us, but in Christ, the radical devotion of this God is that he commits to make us his spouse new through forgiveness. That he commits to make us his spouse to have a new heart, a heart that can be faithful to him. And this new promise, this new covenant of forgiveness of a new heart is not confirmed by the blood of animals symbolically slain on the altar. This blood commitment is made and sealed by the blood of Jesus crucified on the cross. The vertical beam is anchored in the ground. It's an invitation for a work that's been done. The horizontal beam is our confession, our repentance, our worship, our submission, our response. And at the intersection of the vertical and the horizontal, at the dead center of our lives, holding it together, hangs the life of our Lord, our Savior, who is so committed to being with us that he offers his own body and blood to hold it all together. He who is faithful, who has everything to lose, binds himself in blood to we who are unfaithful, who have lost everything. That's grace. That's the sign of the cross. Beloved, out of his own sacrificial love, Jesus and the God 
that is Jesus Christ as he gathered with his old, unfaithful spouse, represented in those 12 disciples who would betray him, who would forsake him. He broke bread with them, and in the breaking of bread, at the end of the meal, he took bread. He gave thanks for it. He blessed it, and then he broke it and set it in the breaking. This is my body. Given, broken for you. Take and eat of it. And in the same way, he took the cup and he blessed it. He gave thanks for it and said, this is the cup of my blood. This is the cup of a new covenant. My blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink from it. And my brothers and sisters, when we eat this bread and when we drink this cup, we realize that a promise has been made. We realize how a promise is kept and we engage the making of that promise. We engage the keeping of it in Jesus Christ. We renew our vows. Through his own sacrificial love, God sets a table. He invites us to commune with him, to break bread with him, to become a part of his family, to, sleep, to cease living on our own, to stop being single, but to marry our hearts and our lives to him. Beloved, I invite you if you're ready to come and say yes again. To come and say yes to this God who in Christ says yes to you. Let us come to the table.